Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello! Welcome back to another edition of our archaeogastronomical podcast, The Delicious Legacy. I am your designated gastro-explorer and host of the show, Tom Dinas. Sit back, relax and enjoy another episode of our travels through space and time. And today, we're not going to go so far into the past. and We're not going to travel too far um, away from... Uh, where we are now, really. I thought, well, I found some interesting um, stories that I wanted that I wanted to explore of um, English cuisine and English food and ingredients. And some of them, they're traditional stuff that you might have heard of. And some others, well, they aren't really. They seemed a bit, um, a bit unique to me and a bit uh, worth exploring, really. Because um, it is traditional food. It's old, not thousands of years old. But there are recipes that they seem to be embedded on the character of the region and that they are from. And um, they are, well, to my eyes, first of all, they tell something about the story of the place and the story of, of the people from, uh, from these places that we're going to talk about. And... They do sound tasty, at least uh, to my um, to my tastes and to my um, palate. And also, I think um, I think it tells us something, uh, uh, gives us a better picture of uh, English food, and uh, not uh, not that that strict, uh, very bland and grey picture that we have of. Um, Equally of boring English food, but also uh, bland food, with exceptions of fish and chips and uh, a Sunday roast dinner with all the trimmings, which, of course, they are delicious. You have lots of different bits and bobs, and they, they make they make a beautiful plate. But apart from those those generic stuff, and of course, the myriad of delicious uh, British cheeses that they are exceptional, to be honest. Yeah, um, the the British food and English food, uh, particularly, has a very bad <laughs> reputation. So I think um, we can um, explore that and um, 
um, correct some misconceptions. There are some famous quotes um, that uh, tell you all, all you need to know about um, how bad is the reputation of British food around um, Europe, at least. So, for example, there is one quote, which I don't know who said it first, but uh, they say, the British Empire was created as a byproduct of generations of desperate Englishmen roaming the world in search for a decent meal. Or there's another one from... Um, uh, Jacques Chirac, the president of the French uh, Republic, allegedly he said in a summit, uh, in a European summit, that uh, you cannot trust people who have such bad cuisine. Great Britain is the country with the worst food after Finland. I mean, that's a very bad thing to say anyway. It's a very faux pas <laughs> for both countries. But also it's it's very unfair. It's a very unfair reputation that um, uh, English cuisine has around Europe. Uh, to my eyes, and to, in my opinion, anyway. And um, there is an element of um, truth in terms of that after World War II, a lot of um, traditional foods disappeared and traditional recipes uh, gone away um, to be replaced initially with uh, simpler stuff because of, um, because of the situation after World War II. But also uh, there was a, a movement... Um, you know, very violent, in a way, movement towards mass industrialization of food, which, um, I mean, forced people to move along as well. It was it was a forceful and forced um, decision. It wasn't natural in a way. So it took uh, a lot of the um, a lot of the traditional recipes and a lot of the traditional food, uh, the cheap cuts of meat, the regional products um, of uh, you know fruits and jams and the relishes, uh, hams, cheeses, and all that stuff to create a more uniform, a more bland, and a more um, very, very cheap to produce um, food, but not tasty and not and not, and not to the character of its region, really. Uh, so it, it brought a uniformity to the British cuisine, um, which um, it didn't serve uh, it didn't serve well as an ambassador to the great British produce that that is around around these isles. Um, admittedly, <laughs> the last, um, I, I guess now, around 20 years now, there's, there's, uh, there's been giant steps have been made by the culinary um, world here in Britain and in England specifically, and uh, they celebrate the produce a lot more. And of course, um, they use a lot of more of the traditional products and a lot of recipes have been revived, especially for cheeses, but also for hams, yeah, there is a bit of a cause of celebration and optimism here. Uh, contrast that to the European cuisine, that not only food is very cheap for the masses, um, perhaps not so cheap as the supermarket food in UK. And here is the trick that we have very cheap, abundant product from supermarkets, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's A, healthy, and B, tasty. Yes, it's cheap, and we cover our calorific needs more than we need. So there's the problem of obesity here. But also it's a lot of ready-made food, a lot of sugar, a lot of fat, but bad fat, a lot of um, empty calories here. And of course, we have taken away the, the choice and the knowledge from the people that they can cook cheap, delicious, nutritious, healthy meals at home, which of course is a very, a very big conversation here and... I'm not an expert and I'm not going to solve it. But I think because we've taken all the knowledge and we have lots of cheap food from supermarkets, we lost here in the UK and especially in England, 
we lost our traditional recipes, forgot them, and yeah, a lot of cheap ingredients which people used to rely on, and cheap cuts of meat, and um, local fruits and vegetables have been discarded in a way. So all this cheap choice that you had as a as a poorer person or a person that cannot afford um, these elements has been replaced by ready-made meals from supermarkets. Um, okay, I will conclude this uh, rant by saying that um, if we compare and contrast this with the peasant European cuisine, we notice that the ingredients that they use, for example, tomatoes, peppers, feta cheese, olives, and so on, they've been important here as more or less luxury items or items for the middle classes and above, and they are expensive. And it seems to be like an aspirational thing uh, which some of the poorer classes, perhaps, they cannot achieve because it's, it's out of their budget. So we, we, we discarded all the beautiful produce, cheap, fresh, abundant produce from the British Isles. And um, so, yeah, uh, kind of concluding this round and bringing everything together, I'm just going to um, explore some traditional um, ingredients and uh, food uh, from uh, northern England. Specifically, I think I'll be northwest and um, Lancashire, Yorkshire mainly, and the lakes. And yeah, we'll find some ingredients that um, they really um, clicked and. Um, <laughs> filled my imagination with um, delicious thoughts. Uh, some of these food items you're going to see, they, they, they're part of the identity of the people from each region we're going to explore. I'm going to start with the cheese. We're going to see Ribblesdale cheese from northwest England, um, the region of Ribblesdale, which is in Yorkshire. Apologies for my pronunciation of places, but I'm not an expert in, <laughs> in uh, pronouncing uh, a lot of uh, these um, fairly unknown places in the north. So Ribblesdale cheese, it's a, it's, um, it's a pressed, pasteurized milk cheese. It's made from cows, goats and sheep's uh, milk. Not all together, there are different versions made. And then you have different versions like plain or smoked or with garlic. Um, for, the sheep, um, for the sheep cheese, it's, will, it's about 1.2 kilograms. For goat, about 1.7. If it's from cow milk, about 2 kilograms. So the, the, the form is a flat wheel. And the color is almost uh, white. And the curd is, and is waxed. The flavor is firm, nutty, and mild. So Ribblesdale, uh, on the west of the Pennines, probably shared the general cheese-making traditions of, the, of all the dales. The area has long been known for mild-pressed cheeses. Both sheep and cow milk types are recorded. No documentary evidence for cheese making in the Dale has been found, but artifacts such as a stone weight from the press at Ashes Farm, where the, the Ribblesdale cheese is made, indicate that it was made there in the past. The modern cheese was evolved by the Hill family uh, using uh, Wensleydale recipes during the 1980s. So here we have an old, an old recipe, an old cheese that production stopped and then somebody revived it in the 1980s and yeah i mean it's one cheese that you don't really find in the supermarkets to be honest um so i was very intrigued by it so i searched on the internet and yeah you can find it in cheese shops 
around UK. Um, so yeah, that's um, my first food item from the north. Uh, next one, I have um, a fruit, and it's a pickled damson uh, from northwest England, but from the Lake District area. And this pickle is dark red with a whole fruit visible. The flavor is sweet and sour with a distinct rich plum taste, lightly spiced. It's not very clear when the first plums planted there up in the Lake District, but um, they are especially valued in the northwest of England. And uh, there are many, many old orchards. Damsons have been associated with Westmoreland for over 150 years. There were several methods of preserving them, including jams and fruit pastes. Another obvious way to preserve them was pickle in vinegar and sugar. They were the only locally produced fruit available in sufficient quantity for this type of product, as the area does not support the large orchards and market gardens found in the southeast. The technique of producing it is a mixture of spirit or malt vinegar, sugar and spices, mainly cloves and cinnamon, which is boiled to make a syrup. Each damson is pricked several times and added to this uh, syrup. They are cooked in the pickle for 10 minutes, then potted. Some cooks crack the stones and add the kernels. I think maybe this one will go well with, uh, with the cheese. I'm not entirely sure, but, but yeah, uh, that's something that I haven't, I haven't tried yet. So this pickled damson recipe. But again, that's another traditional recipe from, uh, from the north west of England. This is from the north of England in Calderdale in South Yorkshire. And it's a dock pudding. It's um, basically a brownish green puree. It's flavor salty and uh, spinach-like. This spring dish, regarded as a blood purifier, is associated with South Yorkshire and the Lake District where it is known as Easter Ledge. It is made from common plants which appear early in the year and probably aided the health of the population by providing necessary vitamins after a long winter diet of preserved and salted foods. In composition, it amounts to a vegetable porridge. Essentially, it is now a poverty food based on groats. So groats are basically husked, crushed oats with wild greenery. Again, we can see we can see the, the the origins of this food, really, really simple and really, really. Um, I mean, it's free. It's you have to go and collect it from from uh, the hills and uh, the countryside, and that's something that probably started from the very, very, very poor people uh, and and um, the agrarian societies of the north, which they needed they needed some supplement to their diet, and obviously some vitamins and minerals and so on. Um, so it has been documented in the Lake District um, as early as um, you know, early 19th century, when um, tourists started finding the area interesting. So we have we have uh, documents since then. The notes for the herbs used include um, bistort, nettles, ladies' mantle, black currant, and raspberry leaves, dandelion plus onions, chives, cabbage, and lettuce. Apparently, Victorians uh, realized its value to the poorer classes. There is a recipe for sweet dogs with oatmeal, and this was included in Alexis Sawyer's 
shilling cookery for the people in 1856 edition. Obviously, production is now limited and mostly domestic, but it's still made for sale in Cuddledale, a valley in the southern Pennines. Also, there is a dog putting competition held in the village of Mytholmroyd, West Yorkshire, every May. The preparation for this um, dish, for this green puree, is pretty simple, I think. Um, you get the vegetable ingredients, which are pretty simply uh, pistol and nettles and all the other herbs that you desire. Um, you wash them and you, you strip them from their stems. Then you chop it with onion, add some seasoning, and they're cooked uh, in water for 20 minutes. Then oatmeal is added and the mixture is cooked for, for 20 minutes more. You then strain the mixture. At this point, you can put into a jar or deep frozen. And to reheat, it is cut in slices and fried in bacon fat for breakfast. It was used to accompany veal in the Lake District. Another produce from the northwest of England, in Cambria, it's uh, the Hedwig Macon Ham, which is um, made obviously from uh, lamb, Hedwig lamb, which is a heritage and very, um, it's not popular per se variety, but it's a very well-known variety between butchers and farmers and so on. What's that Macon ham? Uh, whole smoked cured hams made from sheep meat that they weigh around three kilograms with bone in. The color is very dark red, translucent lean with streaks of pale, creamy gold fat. Dark gold outside. The flavor is pronounced gamey lamb flavor with herb undertones and mild smoke. This to me sounds like heaven. I don't know why it's not more popular. It's a dish that uh, it's a it's a ham that I will definitely um, eat uh, more often if I can if I could find it. Uh, the history behind it, obviously, we know ham is associated with cured pig meat, but it has a broader meaning of uh, the hind leg of any animal, especially those killed for meat. So the, there are there is history there is. Um, recipes for goat hams cured in Wales and others, other regions uh, until the late 18th century. And, um, I know that might sound a bit weird, and there was also badger hams. <laughs> the use of mutton, which is a sheep over one year old, uh, to make hams is also a long British tradition which lingered in the more remote uplands. The word Macon was a hybrid, so mutton plus bacon, of the Second World War to describe mutton cured as bacon, an innovation that took advantage of the excess of the Highland sheep at a time when pigs were an increasing rarity. Another solution adopted with enthusiasm by both the Ministry of Food and the population as a whole was urban, backyard pig keeping, a skill that fallen out of favor uh, since the Industrial Revolution. We have a recipe from, um, I'm sorry for the pronunciation again, Hannah Glass from 1747, which gives instructions for dry curing mutton hams with salt and sugar, followed by smoking and boiling. Recipes were also found in 19th century books on curing meat. In the modern era, mutton hams were a rarity, 
although the idea was preserved in some parts, notably the Lake District. There's an old recipe for brining a mutton ham in a mixture which included molasses and spices before drying and smoking. Until recent years, they were produced by only a few families for their own use. Modern interest in unusual foods has led to a revival of commercial production by a company based at Corney in Cambria. The preserved ham would once have been soaked and boiled, then eaten with bread at ordinary meals. Those made today are eaten raw. The manufacturer suggested with fruit in the manner of Italian air dried hams. The technique is pretty straightforward, as we've seen. Um, there's a local sheep breed, the Hedwig lamb, that provides the meat. They're, they are killed at two to three years old, so we have mutton here. And also crossbred sheep are used to provide uh, larger hams. The hams remain in a dry cure of spiced salt for about three weeks. They are cold smoked over oak and juniper, then matured for eight months. This sounds delicious to me. This sounds something that I really, really want to taste. Please find me some Hedwig. Um, Macon, please. Mm, I'm salivating now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Continuing with, uh, with the theme of uh, sheep, I'll go to the Isle of uh, Man for their sheep, which um, is the Manx Longton sheep, uh, which are uh, have a brown coat and um, they are two-horned. So they're very, very distinctive and characteristic um, animals. They're quite, they're quite uh, rare and um, they, they were saved from extinction 
in around 1913, when, when a display was organized for an agricultural show by John Elwes. At this time, the breed, as I said, it was almost extinct, but a few people on the Isle of Man were sufficiently enthusiastic to conserve their flocks. So with the formation of the Rare Breed Survival Trust about 35 to 40 years ago, this led to a renewed interest. So there are several flocks established on the mainland, and one was established on the Calf of Man, an almost uninhabited island at the southern end of the isle, as a, conf- as a conservation measure against outbreak of disease amongst the main flocks. So the, the, meat, the meat of this Isle of Man ship will be really unique, I reckon. Uh, unfortunately, that's another thing that I haven't tried, um, which um, really pinpoints uh, the problem here with the regional food um, that we, we can't really find it unless we travel to the specific area. And yet we find all these variations of uh, hams from Italy and sausages and um, wines from Spain and so on and so on. You, you understand my point here, I suppose. The rolling hills of the Isle of Man are in a mild maritime climate with no great extremes of temperature, but very, very windy. The native flora is grass and heather and the, and the land is generally well-drained. So the breed has developed to be hardy, grazing the unimproved grass of the higher land. It requires little or no supplementary feeding except before lambing. The ewes are good mothers and prolific milkers. Lambs are raised outdoors with little human intervention. The breed is slow maturing and does not run too fat. As a midship, there is some interest in crossing it with lowland terminal sires to give commercial lamb for the mass market. However, it's difficult to find to find it um, here because um, abattoirs dislike the carcasses because they, they do not conform to official grading and due to legislation from the last century, uh, the butchers of the Isle of Man are not allowed to identify the meat as coming from monks, from monks' longthans. The breed society is working to overcome these problems and there is now some interest in the sheep as a local speciality. The lean meat is dark, close-grained, with very good flavour. Uh, okay, next recipe is from uh, Hawkshead in Cambria and it's uh, the Hawkshead wig. This is a novel bread roll 70 millimeters long and 40 millimeters wide and 40 millimeters deep. The weight is about 40 grams. The color is golden with a shiny top. The flavor is that of a plain bread, lightly spiced with caraway. The wigs, sometimes spelled with an H after W or with a double G, were light textured white bread raised with yeast. The origin of the name is not clear. It is possibly derived from, from a Teutonic word meaning wedge. In some later recipes, the wigs are formed into rounds quartered by a cross, allowing them to be broken into wedges after baking. Both buns and wigs are fine white breads connected with Lent. Samuel Pepys wrote that he had a Lenten supper of wigs and ale in 1664. Buns were early defined as Lenten bread. The word possibly derives from the old French bougne, later beignet, 
small something which puffs up, as fine white bread leavened with yeast would do. Wigs were thought of in the same terms. They were obviously made with fine white flour, and the 15th century reference equates them with buns. Um, in, in Restoration time, they were defined as white bread, molded long ways and thick in the middle. By the times we have the first recipes, these uh, buns they were sweetened and enriched with butter and usually spiced with coriander or caraway. So in the magazine of Domestic Economy in 1840, we have a recipe that requires cream, butter, sugar and spices, including caraway seeds. Irrespective of the connection with Lent, wigs do crop up as a festive food eaten at particular times. They are specially eaten in, at, in different locations at different times. So we have Christmas for Shrewsbury, St. Catherine's for Buckinghamshire, where the shape of the wigs is oblong, and in St. Andrew's Day for, in Bedfordshire. From 1850s, they seem to be mentioned much less frequently. It is possible that the name simply went out of current use. In 1932, Florence White found that rolls known as wigs were still made and sold in the small town of Hawkshead. According to Phyllis Graham, a native, they are still known and occasionally made in the locality, although little interest is taken in them. Only one commercial producer has so far been located. So Hawkshead, uh, Hawkshead wigs are plain and include lard, the, the, the recipe nowadays. None of the sugar, butter and milk of the early recipes. An ordinary dough is set to rise. It is knocked back and softened lard, eight parts dough to one part lard, is kneaded in, together with a small quantity of caraway seeds. The mixture is scaled off into portions of about 40 grams, shaped into ovals, and allowed to rise again. The tops are brushed with milk and sugar. The buns are baked for 20 to 30 minutes at about 220 degrees Celsius. You see, there's another fascinating recipe specific to a region and tied to local customs, which um, most of the European food that we eat uh, conforms to these norms. But if it comes from France or Italy or Spain, it's considered delicacy and it's expensive. If it comes from uh, Cambria, well, there's not even a recipe <laughs> surviving, almost. And of course, there's only one commercial producer making it. There is, there is a, an element of snobbery of the simple, tasty, regional food from England, really, isn't it? Okay, moving on, I'm going to talk about something you might find a bit gross. Again, I think it's, um, I think it's a recipe of, um, of importance because it gives you information on what uh, simple, poor, poorer people in classes uh, used to eat, and that's, um, and that's Cowhill. Yes, you did hear correctly, cow heel. Now, obviously, cow's feet were delicacies and they were treated like pig's trotters or made into the delectable jelly or they used uh, in fine cookery as uh, in stews or stocks or sauces. Cow heel, on the other hand, was altogether more substantial, strongly gelatinous and containing much gristle. It took long time to become tender. An early mention in a work by the 17th century physician Thomas Muffet shows it was considered a valuable restorative, but generally 
It did not figure in dainty cookery books. Martha Barley, in 1756, was on was one of the few who proposed using cowheel at genteel tables, though it may have been an ordinary sound. It makes a very rich and fine soup, very few exceeding it. Apart from occasional appearances in standard Victorian works, such as Mrs. Beaton in 1861, it was probably mostly left to the poor. It was usually boned before eating. The flavor is bland, but its gelatinous texture is the important thing that is valued. Cowheel can be eaten cold with vinegar and salt, or cut up and made into a stew with a white sauce, or added to a richer mixture with beef and vegetables. Tasty little morsels or relishes, such as um, brawn or corned beef or boiled mutton, uh, saveloys, tripe, pig trotters, sausages, and of course cow heels were part of uh, what uh, uh, the fathers uh, used to eat. Uh, it was fathers, the father's tea alone. And there are also recipes from the French uh, that uh, contained um, cow heel. By the 1940s and 50s, uh, cow heel was, as- was associated with North Country and uh, it was a favorite standby in cattle market towns and it was made into jellied brawn. Cowheels generally were prepared by tribe dressers, and generally this is because uh, a tribe set of offals from a cow consisted of the tribe, feet, reed, and the windpipe, and they were given as a set by the tribe dressers. So the cowheels uh, come from animals over of eight months uh, or older, and... Um, After washing, scalding and removing of the hair and hooves, they are cooked by boiling for three to four hours, then cooled, drained and uh, dressed. And this is from um, Northwest England and uh, Lancashire. Now let's check some fishy stuff. One fish that you might know is char, but you might know the Arctic char, which is actually actually lives in the Arctic, obviously, but um, but there's also char who lives in the in the Lake Windermere and the lakes generally, as um, locked populations survive throughout Europe as well, which are remnants of um, Arctic Arctic char, which was trapped after the last ice age. Generally, they have a limited range to deep lakes, where the waters maintain a temperature of less than 20 degrees below 20 degrees in the summer. There are a few such lakes in England, all in the northwest, but it's also found in some places in the way in Wales and Scotland. Uh, Mrs. Beaton, again, in 1861, said the largest and the best kind is found in the lakes of Westmoreland, and as it's considered a rarity, it's often potted and preserved. Char is a fish similar to trout, with reddish skin on the underside, and they are noted for the delicate flavor. As a delicacy, barrels of potted char were sent to the royal court in the 15th century and mentioned in form, of, in form of pies in the 17th century. The pie seems to have been the first method of preserving the food. It seems like um, from correspondence uh, from the restoration period, giant pies were sent down to London to give exiled Cambrians a taste of home. 
or to persuade politicians of the worth of an applicant's cause. Between 1670 and 1680, the experiment was made of substituting pottery for pastry, and the potted jar was born. Not, not many years later, the intrepid traveller Celia Fiennes appreciated jar potted with sweet spices by an innkeeper in Kendall in 1698. As we can well understand and um, appreciate, uh, potted fish it was a storeroom constant before uh, the rapid transport and the refrigeration of uh, the modern era, which permitted the distribution to all classes in all places. So obviously to make the fish um, stable in any climate, it had to be either salted, uh, dried or smoked or pickled or potted. And all these methods were part of uh, the methods pursued in the early British kitchens, if for no other reason than to avoid monotony of flavour. Apart from potted shrimps and potted crab, I'm not sure if we have many, many of these uh, different preserving methods available to our everyday uh, cooking and from 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 our supermarkets and um, food places nowadays. There was a whole industry for potting char. The fish were cleaned, spiced, and packed in attractive dishes, made especially for the purpose. Then covered with butter and cooked. In this form, they were they kept well, and they were exported to the rest of Britain. Obviously, the fishery went into decline in 1860 due to overfishing by netsmen, and the stocks recovered slightly as a result of official, of official restrictions, and of course all netting was forbidden, but they have never reached their former heights. Some fish are still taken, and now char is usually grilled for lunch or dinner. In Lake Windermere, a distinctive method of fishing is employed. It requires a rowing boat to support two rods, each of which bears a vertical line weighted with 750 grams lead weights. At intervals from each vertical line, six horizontal lines are trailed, each bearing six to ten spinners or lures, the theory being that fish swimming at different depths can be caught. The boat has to be kept in constant motion so that the lines trail correctly and do not become tangled. Uh, for our following uh, food item, we're going to go back to the Isle of Man and we're still staying with the fish and we're talking about Manx Keepers. Cold smoked Manx Keepers are about 22 centimeters, including head and tail and they weigh about approximately 120 grams. The skin is dark grey-brown on the back, fading to silver on the belly with a distinctly gold tinge. The flesh is dark golden brown. The flavour is mild fishy, mellow, with the salt being more dominant over the smoke, and it's quite oily. So we all heard of keepers and smoked keepers. Um, the Isle of Man is good base for which to cut the herrings, and it's an island tradition of salting and curing them, to make, to make either barreled salt herring or red herrings. They were they were much more uh, common in the past, uh, and especially for export. Keepered herring, made to the cure developed by the John Woodger from Northumberland, first became popular in the 1940s, and the process must have spread rapidly to other parts of the country. Um, the cure used for keepers on the Isle of Man is similar to that used elsewhere. The herring are prepared by splitting and cleaning, 
They are then brined for a short time, hung on tender hooks and smoked. There are several points which makes the monk's keeper unique. Firstly, they are always undyed. Secondly, the excellence of the herring, which have a fat content and composition which render them highly usable for this type of cure. Fish caught early in the season, which is from June to August, are best, and those from Irish boats, which fish in pairs with one net between two boats, are preferred. As the fish landed by this are in excellent condition with no bruising. Finally, there is the skill and attention given to them during the smoking. Peter Canipa, who smokes the fish uh, for Devereaux and Son, uses a smoke temperature higher than that used elsewhere and remarks that timing is crucial to quality. This depends on the fish's size and oil content uh, and ambient temperature. Uh, now, this is, this is a, a fish that I had uh, a few times, luckily, one of the recipes that I had a couple of times, and I can attest that it's a really, really uh, delicious smoked uh, fish, which I highly recommend. All this talk about food uh, makes me really hungry now. Finally, to conclude uh, our uh, unusual foods tour of Northern England, let's uh, see some, some sweets. So we'll start with uh, Wilfra Tart, which is a double crust pie with a decoration of three pastry leaves around the central vent, about 120 to 130 millimeters in diameter and 20 millimeters deep. The weight is about 350 grams. It has a pale gold pastry color with yellow melted cheese showing through the central hole. The flavor is crisp, unsweetened pastry with a feeling of sweetened apple and a layer of cheese. Wilfra tarts are made in the town of Ripon in, in North Yorkshire. The name is a corruption of St. Wilfrid, which was a bishop of York and a monk at Ripon, and he lived in 1634 to 709 AD, and is the patron of the town's cathedral. The tarts are made for a procession held in his honor on the Saturday before the first Monday in August. This procession has a history which stretches back at least to the late Middle Ages. Earlier evidence about the tarts themselves are not forthcoming. Hence, the first description is, is in uh, White in 1932, who noted them as small jam tarts or cheesecakes. Later sources comment that the tarts were handed out to passerby or left on plates by house doorways for people to help themselves. There are at least two versions of this uh, tart. And one is the apple and cheese that we mentioned, which is a version made for sale. And another recipe which calls for, for a filling of butter, ground almonds, sugar, lemon rind, soaked breadcrumbs and egg. This last is similar to early almond cheesecake recipes, uh, for instance from Eliza Smith's book in 1758. The origin of the apple and cheese combination is less obvious. English cooks were rather indiscriminate about the basis of the cheesecakes which quite often contained no cheese, no curdled milk, but were based on eggs and almonds instead. It is possible that the current recipe is an evolution of a formerly more complex cheesecake, which included apples amongst its ingredients. The baker who now bakes it uses a recipe which belonged to the business which he acquired some 25 years ago, and he is the only producer. So the, the technique itself, obviously, it's an English sort crust pastry, which used to line a deep pie dish, and the portion is rolled out for the top. A layer of sliced apples is placed at the bottom, brown sugar sprinkled over, and some grated cheese placed on top. 
This should traditionally be Wensleydale, but cheddar, which is deeper yellow, is used in preference. The pie is covered and decorated. It is baked at 180 degrees for about 40 minutes. And it may be eaten hot or cold. Now, I don't know about you, but um, for me it does sound quite interesting and appetizing recipe. You have tart apples and nice melted cheese, I think. I think there is something there. Definitely. Yeah, and a pint of, uh, of ale, I guess. Sounds good to me. And now let's go to Cumberland uh, again. Obviously, we have Cumberland sausages and Cumberland ham, which uh, we know and thankfully they're still happening. They're still being produced. But uh, this is a sweet one, and it's Cumberland uh, rum butter. Rum as the drink rum. Um, it's a flavored butter sold in quantities of 110 or 220 grams. The color is cream yellow brown, depending on the type of sugar used. The flavor is spicy, sweet, and alcoholic. There is um, an association of rum butter with uh, Cumberland since at least the late 19th century, when um, Joseph Wright was collecting information on his dialect dictionary, and he noted the association of the dish with the region and several customs linked with it. Rum butter was eaten by wives during their confinement and is offered to and expected to be partaken of by visitors. The lady who first cuts into the bowl is predicted to require a similar compliment. Coins for the baby were collected in an empty bowl. The Oxford English Dictionary gives the first instance of rum butter in print as Mrs. A. B. Marshall's cookery book, 1887. The recipe probably predates this, as the ingredients are all traditional to Lake District cookery. It is also known in Cambria as hard sauce. Today, a brandy-flavored version is also made. The recipe and method are simple, and vary only in the scale of operation from domestic kitchen to commercial confectioners. Basically, unsalted butter is whipped to a cream, mixed with soft brown sugar and rum, and spiced to taste. The mixture is chilled until required. Light brown or muscovado sugar can be used as taste dictates. The proportions are one part per butter to two parts sugar. I will upload maps on Patreon uh, with the places that I mentioned for all to see and um, and also post with each ingredient, food or recipe of the region uh, for you for all of you to see. Now is it interesting that all these um, all these regional recipes aren't more well known? Well I think I think they deserve to be heard all over the UK and of course we need to taste them a lot more often. Uh, some of them, yes, we can make them at home, and that's great, but some of it is very, very regional, and it's part of the identity of the people, but also gives us a better and clearer picture of how food around UK uh, was produced 200 years ago or more. And I mean, this is, this is part of the PGO and PGI status that um, a lot of European food has. And of course, a lot of this um, stuff there also the British foods that I mentioned, they have this status too. And, you know, Britain and continental Europe possesses an enormous range of uh, wonderful food. And, of course, and of course, the, this system of PD, PGO and PGIs, it's, it's, been, it's been developed by the European Union in 1992 to create systems uh, for protected designation of origin and protected geographical indication to promote and protect regionally important foods, regionally important food products. For a protected designation of origin, a PDO, 
this describes a food that is produced, processed, and prepared in a given geographical area using a recognized skill. A protected geographical indication, PGI, demonstrates a geographical link between a foodstuff and a specific region in at least one of the stages of production, processing, or preparation. And this, this, this stuff, they have a link to the terroir of the region, the microclimate, the soil, um, the temperature, and um, the unique flora and fauna of, of, the, of, the, of the area that it comes from. All in all, I think we should celebrate this a lot more. And with this, I conclude uh, my tour of um, unusual foods of Northern England. I hope you found something interesting here. And I would be interested to know uh, your opinion on, um, on these um, uh, strange and unique recipes. If you had them before today, or if you have tasted something uh, similar, or any of these food items I described above. So yeah, please get in touch um, and tell me your, um, your experiences with uh, the foods. And that's it for today. I've been Thomas Dinas, and this was a delicious legacy podcast. Have a lovely rest of the day. Remember to follow on Twitter, on Instagram, The Delicious Legacy. And if you want the podcast to be delivered to you earlier than the rest of the world, then um, become a patron on Patreon. So from uh, $3 and above, you can get the podcast early and a lot of unique and exclusive uh, writing amongst other surprises. Thank you.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 